Today is yet another fascinating parable of Jesus that makes for an interesting story on its own, in the abstract, but is so much richer and truer and more useful to us when we read it in its actual context. The context of Matthew's narrative and the context of Matthew's community in Antioch. So let's read it that way. The story about ten bridesmaids, five foolish and five wise. And let's start with the context of Matthew's written narrative, where it shows up in the gospel, why it shows up in that spot, and why it shows up at all. Because incidentally, Matthew is the only one of the gospels to tell this story. Turn back one chapter, and we have a clue. All of chapter 24 is about the end of the age, so to speak. Speaking to his disciples, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and increasing warfare among nations. With it will come suffering and distress, he says, torture, martyrdom, betrayal, false prophets, lawlessness, and he calls all this the beginning of the birth pangs of the new age. And then in 24 verse 32, Jesus says, take a lesson from the fig tree. After a dark, cold winter, the branch gets tender and leaves start to push out, and you know spring and summer is on its way. That is, the time when Messiah will set the world right and make the evildoers pay. Jesus ends that chapter with a series of short parables about being ready or not. He compared the end of the age to the age of Noah, where people were not expecting the end and so lived as if there was nothing to lose. Some will be ready and some will not. Then Jesus compares the end to the example of a thief in the night. Always be ready and awake so the thief won't catch you unawares. And finally, he tells a short parable about a master who went away for an undetermined amount of time, put a servant in charge as caretaker. The expectation is that the servant will live every day as if that is the day the master returned so that he would find the household in good shape. But if the servant assumed the return would be delayed, he might mistreat his fellow servants, trash the house, get drunk, and if the master returned with all that going on, it would be bad news for everyone. And then... Immediately after those stories in Matthew 24, Jesus tells the next one. Today's story about the wise and foolish bridesmaids. The wait was a lot longer than they expected. Half of them were ready in case the wait was long. Half of them were not. The story is obviously connected to the preceding ones and must be read in their light. So, why all this attention to the end times in Matthew? 
Because that question was front and center in Matthew's community. It was on everyone's mind. And what you thought about that question had immediate, real-life, social, financial, and political ramifications. Matthew couldn't not write about the return of the Messiah. Now, understanding why this question was urgent for Matthew and entering into Matthew's social and religious context can guard us today from making the interpretive mistakes that result in strange and dangerous Christian movements obsessed about the end times and that feed on fears of God's judgment and promise escape from this world. Now, we have that in our Mennonite history. Of course, some of us recently read Sophia Samatar's The White Mosque, telling of a Mennonite trek to Central Asia in the 1800s, where Klaus Epp Jr. predicted Christ would return. But there are many other less extreme, less colorful, but equally ill-informed ways of reading scripture that spawned the left-behind craze of the 1990s and the 1970s movement inspired by Hal Lindsey that produced books and movies like Thief in the Night. That film was shown in the Mennonite church of my childhood to bring wayward adults to repentance and to terrorize innocent adolescents like me into making a decision for Christ so that we could be assured of escape from this evil world. And I believe it's no accident that that movement coincided with all the social upheaval in our country in the 60s and 70s. Focusing on prophecy about Jesus coming back any day distracted us from working at social change now, like getting worked up about poverty or civil rights or the Vietnam War. All that didn't matter. We would soon be whisked away to heaven. So as a guard against misusing scripture again today, let's look at the context of this parable. So here's a quick review of how the early church came to believe in the near parousia of Christ. Now, parousia is just a Greek word that shows up in our Bible four times in Matthew 24 um, and another 10 to 15 times in the epistles. It's usually translated as coming or appearance. So near parousia is the belief that when Jesus told his disciples that he would return for them in the clouds, they took that to mean a matter of days, weeks, or months. The resurrection was evidence to them that the hope of a political deliverance from Rome wasn't over. It didn't end on the cross. Instead, Jesus would return with the angels of heaven and take vengeance on those evildoers. 
He would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, as expected, and execute justice and judgment against Herod and Caesar and everyone responsible for his crucifixion. The real world here and now would be made right for the Jews and for everyone else. And I think that's a fairly accurate summary of what the first Jesus followers thought salvation meant. But that definition of salvation only worked if they thought Jesus' return was very soon, before winter turned into spring and summer. But then life unfolded in a way they hadn't expected. There was a curve in the road they didn't see coming. Decades passed. And Jesus still had not come back for his political revenge. The bridegroom was late. And the conflict between Rome and Judea got even worse. Life got harder for them. It culminated ultimately in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Rome laid waste to their city and temple and killed a million of the Jews. So during this time, there was an evolution of thought. Their theology shifted. You can actually see this shift happening in the different writings of the New Testament. The radical actions of Christians in Acts selling everything, moving into community and abolishing private property was probably not done for some long-term abstract philosophical reason. No, it was a short-term survival strategy that made common sense for people who had suddenly lost their jobs, lost their economic security, when the world turned against them, they had to turn to each other to eat and live. Books have been written about the early church and how they evolved from expecting Jesus to return very soon for the political salvation of the Jewish people to a longer view where salvation by the Messiah was less about Israel or any one nation, but more about putting the whole world back on course, bringing both spiritual reconciliation to God and social reconciliation for all in a wide world of shalom. After the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem lay in ruins, and Gentile believers started coming into the church, well, that fundamentally changed the lives of Christians in Antioch, Matthew's community, and everywhere that the church was growing. Because they were developing a broader understanding of what the Messiah's agenda was. They let go of their belief that Jesus was soon coming back to set up a new political dynasty in Jerusalem. 
In other words, they encountered a major curve in the road and they navigated that curve. Some more successfully than others, of course, because conflict in the church, intense conflict, continued for a long time as they tried to sort out what the Messiah's agenda really was and how Jews and Gentiles fit into that. You see, for the early church, what you believed about Jesus and how and when he might be returning had major practical and ethical implications. It made a difference how invested you were in the community where you actually lived. If you were a Jewish Christian in Antioch and you were just biding your time until Jesus, the political savior, came back and punished the empire, then you would have little motivation, I'm, I'm afraid, to, to work for the shalom of your city or to care about the well-being of your Gentile neighbors or even about your Jewish neighbors who didn't follow Jesus and who you no longer worship with. For that matter, you had little motivation to minister to anyone who was poor or hungry or threatened if they weren't in your tr smaller tribe of believers. But if you took the long view, the broader view of Jesus' saving agenda, then you lived as if every relationship mattered. You lived as if the bridegroom could show up at any moment or a millennia from now. You know, it seems to me, friends, that in this way, the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins, even though it was directly aimed at Antiochian Christians after 70 AD, is also aimed at us. Its message today is just as potent. Yes, in a way, Messiah has already come and lived among us, has already showed us the way to live. And in another way, the Messiah is among us now through the spirit that is at work in each other. But just as importantly, we continue to wait for Messiah. The cosmic saving mission of God through the Messiah is not yet fulfilled or accomplished. Messiah is late in coming. And there is work to be done while we wait. How we live every day matters while we wait. We need, as the old spiritual tells us, to keep our lamps trimmed and burning. And children, don't get weary. The time is drawing nigh. Because life does not unfold for us exactly as we expect. There are surprises. 
some joyful, and some deeply painful. There are surprises. The road of following Jesus today still has unexpected curves. We need to stay alert, keep our eyes on the road, and be ready for what we weren't expecting. And we're not alone on this road. There are others with us to help us navigate the curves, but neither can we afford to be complacent. God is in it for the salvation of the world and has chosen us as partners in that work. So the stakes are high. But when we see the curve and navigate it with God, the rewards are also high and great. Let us join in a prayer of confession. Oh God, we didn't see you coming. Forgive us our unreadiness. Open our eyes to your coming. Lord, have mercy. We thought we knew your plans. We thought we knew our duties, but there came a curve. Life did not unfold as we expected. We did not see you in the curve. Forgive us our unreadiness. Open our eyes to your coming. Lord, have mercy. God, the patient one, waits on us without coercion or compulsion, forgives us and welcomes us to the feast. Amen. And now you can turn and sing the story to number 118 or follow along on the screens as we sing together the old spiritual that I referred to. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning, inspired by this parable, and also perhaps rooted in the experience of enslaved people waiting for the arrival of a conductor of the Underground Railroad to take them away in the night. Keep your lamps trimmed and burning. 